0: The reading this morning is Psalm 73, which you'll find in your pew Bibles on page 587. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin how suddenly are they destroyed completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes so when you arise O Lord you will despise them as fantasies when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered I was senseless and ignorant I was a brute beast before you Yet I am always with you. You hold me at my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near you, God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to be changed by you. Amen. Amen. We need to imagine the scenario. We have a couple, let's call them Mike and Sally, and they have two children. It's Sunday morning and they're off to church. But Mike didn't set the alarm, so they're running late. Mike thinks Sally said she was going to set the alarm, but she says that's clearly just proof that Mike never listens to a word she says. The children don't want to get dressed, they just want to watch the telly. They also want cereal, not toast, for breakfast, but there's no milk. That's probably Mike's fault too, he (laughs) supposes. The family spend a less than calm hour trying to get everyone dressed and fed as well as having to clean up the jam that's now all over the carpet because Mike let the children eat their toast in the lounge, even though Sally has said they absolutely could not. Finally ready to leave the house, Mike remembers that he invited the new family to come for Sunday lunch. He's sure he told Sally, but whereas he never listens to a word Sally says, Sally remembers everything he's ever told her, and the fact that the new family were coming to lunch is not on the list. The children fight in the back of the car all the way to church. Just because. While Mike and Sally argue about whose fault it is that they're late, that one of the children is wearing odd shoes, and that they have no food to feed the new family when they come for lunch. When they get to church, there is nowhere to park, which is clearly also Mike's fault. They rush to the door with the children being given rapid-fire instructions about what they are and are not to do when they're in the building. They're greeted by a member of the welcoming team who asks how they all are. We're great, says Sally, holding Mike's hand and smiling. A church face is something we can all be guilty of wearing sometimes. We put on a mask to hide what we're really feeling. And sometimes there might be very good reason for that. And it might be absolutely necessary. It is not always appropriate to unburden everything we feel to everyone we meet. But if there's one place where we should be able to be honest about what what is going on in our lives, it should be here. There can be many reasons we're not honest with each other about what's going on. It might be that we're fearful that when we talk about a situation, it will make it real, and we will have to face it rather than pretend it's not happening. Or maybe we don't think anyone would really be interested, or they won't be able to help, so why bother them with it? or perhaps we're embarrassed of the situation we're facing. But I think too often the reasons we put on our church face when we walk into this building is because A, we think we're the only person that's struggling. After all, everyone else in the building said they were fine when they walked in. And B, we don't think we should be struggling. Christians are supposed to have it all sorted out, aren't we? So we just can't admit that we haven't. And the problem with that is they're both completely untrue. I'm fairly certain that everyone in this building is facing a struggle or difficulty of some sort at the moment. And if everybody is, then it's clearly okay that Christians struggle. Now putting on a church face with our brothers and sisters here isn't great. But all too often we can do exactly the same with God. We try to hide how we're feeling from Him, and we do it especially when what we're feeling is angry or disappointed with Him. Well, what we see in Psalm 73 is a great example of honest, heartfelt prayer. Asaph was an exile in Babylon. He'd seen the devastation of his nation, his homeland and his culture. So here he is, torn away from everything he knew by a people who don't know God and whose only real concern is power. But as he looks out of his window, the things he knows and trusts about his loving, just God don't match what he sees. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. When what you know to be true of God does not match with the view from your window. But I also wonder what sort of response you've had from Christian brothers and sisters when you've expressed that feeling. My guess would be you've heard a lot of, none of us can ever really know what God is doing. Or Romans 8, 28 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Or maybe God's answer is just no in this situation. Or any number of very true, very scriptural statements that in reality make us feel we don't get to question God. We just have to accept what He's doing and be happy about it. But in the midst of long term illness or financial struggle or family breakdown, for example, those platitudes can just sound trite and can add incredible guilt to what we're already feeling. So we find ourselves unable to pray about our situation because we just can't make ourselves feel the things we believe we should feel. Many of you will know that the last, well, this period keeps getting longer, 18 months probably for our family have not been great. Um, I had eight weeks off with stress last year and then in December got Uh, was ill with meningitis and turned out eventually I had glandular fever as well and Steve's had an incredible pain in his back which has eventually had um, surgery which praise the Lord has worked but it's been a very long road and if I'm honest it even now feels like actually I'm trying to peer around corners to see what's coming next because that's what it's felt like for 18 months And I have said to many people, I can't pray into this situation anymore. Because actually, I don't feel like God's listening. I can't make myself feel like God is going to answer me. But what we have in Psalm 73 is the prayer of a man who can't make himself feel those things either. But doesn't shy away from telling God just that. Psalm 73 is a pattern for all of us who are struggling to match what we know in our heads with what we see with our eyes so we're going to look at Asaph's prayer and see what it means for our own prayer when all is not rosy in the garden Asaph starts his prayer in the way I guess many of us have been taught to begin in fact in the way Jesus tells us to start when he gives us the pattern of the Lord's Prayer he starts in praise. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph knows this to be true. He has read and studied the scriptures. He knows all that God has done for Israel. He knows the promises God has made to his people. Asaph knows that they are God's chosen people, that the nations around him who neither know nor love the way of God will face judgment. He has seen how God has conquered nations and he's been taught how he rescued Israel. He knows that God is good. He knows that to be true. We know how good God is. We know everything he's done for his people over thousands of years. We know that God so loved the world that he did not withhold his only son but sent him to die in order that we might be in right relationship with him and live with him in eternity. We know that God has promised justice for his children and judgment on the evil that prowls around our world. We know that God has the power to heal, to step in and change our circumstances. We know that God hears and answers prayer. We've seen it in the lives of others. We've seen it in our own lives and we have read it in his word. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know God is good. We know that's true. But as soon as the words, surely God is good to Israel, are out of his mouth, Asaph realises that what he knows in his head to be true does not match the reality of what he sees out of his window. And he can't hide how he feels from God. He doesn't try to cover it up or just make small talk. He doesn't just move on to his list of things he needs God to sort out, all the while slightly doubting that God will really hear, never mind answer. No, Asaph stops. He looks around him and he says, God, if I'm honest, this is rubbish. And if I'm honest, I'm not happy about the things you are allowing to happen. In fact, if I'm honest... I'm wondering if it's all worth it. If you've still got that open, look at with me at verses three to twelve and see what his complaint is. Firstly, he's unhappy with the way the wicked are allowed to sail through life with no problems at all. He complains that the wicked prosper, that they have no struggles, that they are healthy and never plagued by the ills all humans face. Have you ever looked out at this world and felt the same? that those who have no regard for God or for other people even seem to just sail through life their businesses prosper they gain great wealth it's never them who get cancer or get knocked over by a bus or caught up in natural disasters or shot by terrorists on a beach (coughs) secondly Asaph complains about the way the wicked live their lives They're proud. They're violent. They're consumed by evil. Evil thoughts which know no limits, he says. It seems that those who prosper in this world are those who are not afraid to step on people to get to the top. They have no regard for anyone they leave in their wake. If you watch The Apprentice, you will hear that over and over again. I will climb over anyone I have to to get to the top, and it is said with pride. Asaph goes on, they scoff, they're arrogant, they threaten others, they claim possession of heaven and earth. And to make matters worse, Asaph says, because of this, not despite it, because of this, people flock around them. He says that people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now, you'll notice that the very helpful footnote to this verse at the bottom of the page says, the meaning of the Hebrew for this verse is uncertain. I love footnotes that say that. And after finding 30 different translations and explanations of this verse, I found one writer claims that no other verse had been more variously translated than this one, which is very helpful. But in the context, it seems to me that Asaph is saying people flock around these wicked people who have prospered and enjoy the same benefits. They flock to them and they drink of the same water in abundance. Asaph concludes his moan about these people with a sum up in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. I'm sure as we read these verses, we can all picture someone or something that Asaph is describing. The reality is that nothing has changed since this psalm was written. There will always be those who rise to the top and enjoy the view seemingly free from struggle or judgment. But Asaph isn't just complaining that this is the way the world works. Look at verse 13, because there we find the real root of his problem. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Asaf is echoing the cry I've heard from so many Christians and have uttered myself many times. Life would just be easier if I wasn't a Christian. He says, I've tried to do the right thing. I've been living the way you want me to live and where has it got me? Nowhere. Asaph doubts whether it's really all worth it. He's living for God and getting nothing in return while all around him, he can see those who completely disregard what God wants and get everything. And even if we don't feel it to be true in our own lives, I'm sure we can all think of people, godly, wonderful people, who just take knock after knock after knock. And when we think of those people, our heart just wants to shout at God We want to rant and rail because it's just not fair. And I think this psalm is here to show us that it's okay to do that. Asaph isn't alone. David spends many psalms complaining about the way God is handling things. Job knows he's done nothing to to deserve the devastation he's facing and asks God what he thinks he's doing. In... In the Gospels, we see Jesus beg and plead with God in the garden to change the situation he's facing. Jesus is honest with his Father about how he feels, even though he knows it won't change anything. He doesn't hide his fear or sorrow from God. Now, You might hear people say, it's okay to shout at God, he's got broad shoulders, he can take it. And while that's probably true, I think it's more that it's okay to shout at God because we are called into a relationship with him. And a real relationship involves total honesty. My grandparents were married over 50 years before my granddad died, and I remember my nana telling me time and time again as a child that they had never had a crossword. Now, I admit... Never heard them argue or even disagree. But after 19 years of my own marriage, I very much doubt that was true. (laughs) But I also doubt that it's healthy. Because we are imperfect people. We don't all get it right all the time. So if we're being truly honest in our relationships, there will be times when the other person makes us angry or irritates us or frustrates us. God desires real, honest relationship with his people. So that must mean it's okay for us to feel frustrated, disappointed, or even angry with him. And it must mean that it's okay for us to tell him. So if things are rubbish, tell him. If you're angry that things are rubbish, tell him. If you feel the need to rant and rail about the injustice you see in your life or in the lives of others, tell him it is okay to be angry with God. But there was bound to be a but, wasn't there? Asaph realises something that everyone else I mentioned a moment ago realised. That if we're going to get over our anger or frustration with God, we need a different perspective. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the situations we're facing will suddenly not matter or will suddenly not be difficult. Bear with me a few minutes and hopefully you'll hear what I'm saying. Job realised that he could complain about God not stepping in all he liked but that he didn't have the, good, the full picture, only God did. David realised over and over again that God knew what he was doing, even if David didn't. Jesus didn't have to realise it, but he knew that what God was doing through his suffering was more important than his fear or anguish. Asaph realises that it's okay for us to not get what God is doing. In verse 16 he says, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Trying to understand what God is doing in the short term will tie us up in knots. In 2 Corinthians 4.8, Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Paul knew how perplexing it was to try to understand what God was doing. Now I'm sure you will, at some point in your Christian walk, have been told that we only see the back of the tapestry, with all its mess and its knots. Only God can see the final picture. Only He knows what He's making out of our mess. But that's not what Asaph sees. Yes, we do see the messy side of the tapestry. Yes, we have to live amongst the stray threads and knots. We see threads that don't seem to make any sense as they cross over others. But we are also allowed to see the other side. We might not be able to work out which bit of the final picture our mess is making or contributing to. But in God's word, we can see what it will all look like in the end. In verse 17, Asaph explains what softens his anger with God. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What Asaph realised was that while it might seem that the wicked in this world sail through life with no problems, while it might in fact be true, For some of them, the glory and power that they gain are not their final destiny. As Jesus said, what good is it for man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? When Asaph meets with God in a sanctuary, perhaps in prayer or worship or in his word, he is reminded of what God is doing in the long term. He is reminded what awaits those who have rejected God in this life. His anger dissipates when he gains the right perspective on what he sees from his window. Now, as I said before, I'm not trying to play down the difficulties some people are facing by saying that if you get the right perspective on things, it will all feel okay. Asaf's new perspective isn't just about the long term. It seems to me that as Asaph is brutally honest with God about how he's feeling, God responds by reminding Asaph how he feels about him. In verse 23, Asaph goes on, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As Asaph rants and rails at God, as he is honest with him about about what he's feeling, he realises that life might be rubbish, but God is with him in it. If you notice, Asaph makes a point of stating that God holds his right hand. If you're walking alongside someone and holding their right hand, you're holding it in your left. (coughs) Symbolically, this means that God holds us tight in his left hand and keeps his right hand free to fight. He walks with us through struggle and he fights for us in that struggle. And after the fight is over, he will take us into glory. Asaph finishes his psalm by saying, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph's situation hasn't changed. God hasn't stepped in and wiped out the Babylonians. The wicked around Asaph will still prosper. Asaph is still torn away from his home. But as Asaph was honest with God, God was honest with him and gave him what he needed for the battles ahead, an eternal perspective and an everlasting promise for now. God will walk with us in struggle with his right hand ready to fight and will lead us into glory. So if you need to shout at God, shout at him. If you need to tell him you don't understand, tell him. If you need to rant and rail about the injustice of your situation, rant and rail. And then allow him to be honest with you back. Walk with him through the battlefield,
0: out into glory. Amen.